here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. We don't know how many people have died that didn't have water, people that were on the brink of financial devastation, people that have been foreclosed on. You don't know what the hell you're going to do, how you're going to make it through the next morning, and, 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 and when is it going to stop? People like to say the coronavirus doesn't discriminate. Rich, poor, black, white, we're all in this together. The virus may not discriminate, but people and institutions certainly do. Discrimination in medicine, housing, and food have disproportionately affected the health of African Americans and other minorities for generations. In many ways, COVID-19 is just exacerbating these age-old problems. So what are we going to do about it? This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, bioethicist, and health policy expert. I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. In this episode, can we solve the racial disparity in deaths from COVID-19? What can we do to address hundreds of years of inequity in the way we respond to this pandemic? Jonathan, to really understand the relationship between African-Americans and American medicine, I think we need to go back to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. It's really one of the most important events in the history of our field, bioethics. And I know this is something you've thought and written about for a very long time. Well, starting at the beginning, this is a 40-year project that started in 1932. Uh, it was done by the U.S. Public Health Service. Now, I know it's usually called the Tuskegee syphilis study. I don't like that because I think it gets confused with the Tuskegee airmen, like they were the human subjects or human experiment victims. I prefer to call it really what it was, which is the U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study. So the Public Health Service went to Macon County, Alabama, where syphilis was endemic. They identified 600 African-American male sharecroppers uh, about 400 of those men had syphilis. They were given free medical care. They were given meals. They were given burial insurance. But the key thing is they weren't told what the study was about. All they were told was they had bad blood. And then after World War II, when penicillin became available and could have been given to them, it wasn't. So over all these decades, the men who had syphilis and might have been treated were not treated. And many of them, over those years, passed on the disease to their wives and children. It's an interesting study because it's not like the researchers from the government were actually trying some experimental medication on these people. It was mostly that they were preventing them from getting something therapeutic when it was discovered. They were kind of deceiving them. It's really a problem about deception. That's right. It was a deception study. There's no question there was deception. And that deception has left deep scars in the relationship between black communities and establishment medicine in the United States. You know, when I worked in Brooklyn in the late 80s through the late 90s, 
once in a while, as a medical school professor, I'd be asked to give talks to middle school kids. They were kids in public schools. They were bright kids. They were in special science sections. And so I would talk about human experiments, and then I would mention the syphilis study, and their heads started nodding. They knew more or less what I was talking about. And I walked away sort of shocked that this was such a milestone in the black community that junior high school kids knew about it. So this was a study that went on for decades, and there were people inside the government who objected to the study, but it was only when it was finally publicly disclosed in an expose in the papers that it was finally shut down. Yeah, it went on for 40 years, from 1932 to 1972, and a whistleblower named Peter Buxton came forward. It was published in newspapers. There was a, a wave of outrage and shock and embarrassment. I think it's important that there had just been a prison riot in upstate New York when many black inmates were killed by New York State police. And this episode, I think, to many people, shined a light on what had been going on with black men in the U.S. Starting the late 1960s, there were high rates of imprisonment. There were new drug laws that were putting more black men in prison. And then just, of course, a few years before that, Dr. King had been assassinated. But this was about health care, and that felt different. It just felt like, to many people, the American system, even the healthcare system, was shot through with institutional racism. Yeah, Tuskegee's really had an incredible legacy that is quite negative. I mean, there was a recent study that showed that people in the African-American community had distrust of doctors many years after, not just researchers, but actual doctors who were caring for them. And that led to a decrease in their life expectancy because they weren't using the medical system or weren't using it properly. You know, if you don't trust the system, it's hard to regain that trust. It's easy to lose trust, but it's hard to regain trust. It takes a long time and lots of consistent actions. So, yeah, it's been widely reported that COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting African-Americans. We still don't have good data for every state, but in Washington, D.C., where you and I both live, African-Americans make up just under half of the total population, but more than 80% of the deaths from COVID-19. And the situation is the same in Michigan. African-Americans make up just 14% of the Michigan population, but they now account for about 40% of all deaths related to COVID-19. In fact, Michigan has the third highest rate of infections in the country. That's Malik Akini. He's a food justice organizer in Detroit. I live in Wayne County, which has the highest rate of infections and the highest rate of deaths in the state of Michigan. I live in Detroit, which has the highest rate of infections and deaths in Wayne County. And the zip code I live in has the third highest number of infections and deaths in the city of Detroit. We're going to hear more from Malik later in the episode. But first, we spoke to Dr. Jonay Khaldun. She's the chief medical executive for the state of Michigan. Before that, she was health director for the city of Detroit. She also happens to be a practicing emergency room physician. My uncle recently was telling me, you know, Jonay, you're from Ann Arbor, but you're really a, a Detroiter. And, and he's right. I'm, I'm very connected to and aware of the history of my family, which is many generations of African-Americans coming up from the South to 
look for greater opportunities working in the post office, in the car plants. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I'm also very familiar with a lot of the inequities that have occurred in the city, not just with health, but a lot of housing policies and other things that have contributed to the current health status of Detroiters. So very familiar with and connected to uh, the city of Detroit. So maybe you can unpack that because I think it's very insightful about the links between inequities, especially inequities in housing and health outcomes that we're all worried about generally, but now with COVID have become much more visible and problematic and troubling. They're, they're very closely related. Uh, if you, again, just talking about my family, when my grandmother moved into her neighborhood on the east side of the city, uh, they were the first African-Americans on their block. And I've heard many stories about how that went <laughs> and how my family was not really well received in that neighborhood. But then because of housing policies, so people know well about uh, redlining. So basically, banks incentivizing people who are white and not of color to live in certain neighborhoods outside of the city of Detroit. And essentially what it did was create pockets of concentrated poverty where people of color live. And not just talking about mortgages, but also business loans, things that really contributed to a lack of a tax base, a lack of infrastructure, and all the things that relate to poverty, really, not just in the city of Detroit, but in many cities across the country, that has been a significant contributor to why we have persistent poverty and inequities. And absolutely, it, it relates back to racism. And how do you think this affected the health outcomes and the distribution of doctors, healthcare resources, but particularly since we know that so little of health outcomes are determined by healthcare, all the other things that go into determining how long people live and how well they live. So there's there's so many things. So if you talk about poverty and the stress that is goes with living in poverty and how that contributes to people, quite frankly, having a higher incidence of chronic diseases, such as high blood pressure, diabetes. We know that a lot of those diseases are not due to genetic differences or race. They're due to underlying risk factors. And when you're living in poverty, you're more likely to have those underlying risk factors and therefore more likely to have poor health outcomes. So this crisis has exposed the inequities in the system in a very acute way. But it's challenging to think about how to link medical interventions to all these social problems. In medicine, in a way, has always been asked to clean up after social failures. Is there anything that medicine can do now? And I'm also thinking about distrust there might be among African Americans about what happens to you in the hospital. So, so you're absolutely right. It's very unfortunate that COVID-19 is just uh, accentuating what we already know about social determinants of health and health disparities and inequities. When you talk about COVID-19, again, it's very simple. We know it's something that's spread from person to person. And so if you can imagine, the people who are at higher risk uh, are going to be those who are in poverty and unfortunately, disproportionately, people of color. We currently have one of the strongest stay home, stay safe orders in the country. And so really, unless you are 
going out for food, medicine, or you're a critical infrastructure job, meaning working in grocery stores or transportation, you should be staying home. So what does that leave us? It means that a lot of our essential workers who are, again, more likely to be people of color, they actually have to come out. And again, by definition, they're not able to socially distance as well as someone who can stay in their home. So they can't work from home. We also know that a lot of them uh, have to take public transportation. Again, the city of Detroit, the Motor City, it was built for people uh, to have cars. And most people in the city of Detroit don't have a car or have access to a car. So they're taking uh, public transportation. And I think we also have to talk about how easy it is to actually implement CDC recommendations. So you talk about isolation and quarantine. People who are living in multi-generational homes or uh, crowded living conditions or are couch surfing, they can't really socially uh, or isolate or, or do quarantine as well as someone else. And then you touched upon the medical community. Absolutely. There's a lot of mistrust of the medical community in communities of color. And, and I would say often rightly so. We've all heard about things like the Tuskegee experiment where withholding treatment for syphilis for African-Americans. And that was part of a, an American study that was uh, put forth by researchers in the country. So there's a reason for a lot of communities of color to have mistrust of the system. But I'd also add there's research that shows there is implicit and explicit bias in the medical community. And so often those subconscious ways that we think about groups of people. And again, every human being has implicit bias. I have it too. You, you do as well. But we have to really be mindful of how that impacts our ability to, to treat individuals. And, and we need to go back and look at the, the data, but it may be that we find perhaps people of color are not being tested uh, as much, or perhaps they're not being as aggressively managed, meaning bringing them in for observation in the hospital as opposed to sending them home. And, and, and again, I can't say for sure that's what's happening, but if you look at other diseases and health inequities, those are some things that we need to look at very closely. You don't sound like a pessimistic person, and I, by nature, am not a pessimistic person either, but some of these sort of longstanding, really centuries-long inequities can make us pessimistic about, well, what can we do to solve this problem? What do you think you could do in the short term to sort of resolve the inequities around COVID? And then I want to ask you the bigger question is, what do you think in the long term we might do? Right. So I think in the short term, there's some things that particularly the medical community could do. And I actually just sent a letter to all clinicians in the state about these things. So one, just understanding the data. Some people are not aware that these disparities in outcomes exist. So just as a medical provider, understanding this issue and being cognizant that, okay, I have someone who's part of a group who seems to have a higher rate of morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. Let me make sure I'm really keen in and listening to them. Should I be testing them where other ways I may not have thought that they needed a test? Should I be bringing them in for observation to the hospital? Again, we're hearing terrible stories of people seeking medical treatment and then being sent home. So having a lower threshold for admitting people to the hospital. We often talk about screening for social determinants of health in the medical system. I think it's important screening or doing any test, quite frankly, in medicine where you're not going to follow up on the outcome is worthless. So not just screening for things like transportation, what's your home situation, but asking them, you know what, you have COVID-19, 
can you actually isolate appropriately in your home? And if you cannot, you know what? I know that there's a shelter. Here's a resource. Here's a, a hotel down the street. I'm going to connect you to that resource. So I think the medical community can go a little bit further as far as engaging with their patients and understanding the complexities of their lives that may make them at higher risk for dying from COVID-19. So let's talk about the long term and what we might do today to have a better long term. You know, I've been uh, trying to improve the health access and affordability game for a long time, as have you. And, you know, sometimes you get very frustrated that nothing seems to work and we don't seem to be able to move the system fast enough. Do you think there are things we can do today, either at the state level or at the federal level, that would make a big difference to sort of addressing some of these health disparities? Is it bolstering uh, community health centers, the federally qualified health centers? Is it, you know, inducing more doctors to work in the inner city? Are there other things or is it forget the health system? Let's just focus on things like housing and transportation and food. Well, well, you're right. It's got to be both. So we need to be expanding access to care. So expanding access to Medicaid, obviously. Do we need to be looking at increased incentives and payments for people to take Medicaid patients. I think we also can't forget about mental health, right? So a lot of people are going to be dealing with the trauma uh, of this crisis, the mental health crisis for quite some time. I mean, there's so many people who have just lost loved ones. There's children who have lost parents and the impact that is going to have long-term on the, not just the mental health issues, but we all know about adverse childhood experiences and how that contributes to uh, worse physical health outcomes as well. I think we, again, to your point, we have to be looking more upstream at those social determinants of health. So of course, access to housing, access to food, better training for jobs. Uh, Again, we have to get upstream as much as possible in the long term. And again, people have been talking about this for a long time, well before COVID-19. But I really hope we key in and focus on this as we move into uh, recovering longer term, both from a health perspective and economic perspective. You know, you've talked about not wanting to go back to business as usual. What will it take to prevent that from happening? Well, I think we have to hold folks accountable at every level of government, of business, uh, making sure that we are really, I think, diving into the reasons for the outcomes that we're seeing now. And we're, we're working on that at the state level. I think we're really going to have to think about policies that don't exacerbate these inequities. We talked a little bit about access to Medicaid, but there's things around jobs and paid family leave and just there's so many things to think about when it comes to the long term, how we're going to be able to bounce back as a society. But I'm optimistic we have the right people at the state level who are focusing on this and, and we'll continue to move forward with trying to advance progressive policies that, that protect every Michigander and particularly our most vulnerable. I have one last question, which is what keeps you up at night? What are you worrying about in this virus that we haven't asked about? To be honest, uh, what I try not to do is take every case and every death personally. I do feel it is my job to protect the people of Michigan, all 10 million. And I'm worried that people are getting the disease and dying unnecessarily. We just this week learned of a five-year-old little girl 
who died of complications from the disease. And like, my condolences go out to the family. I can only imagine how they must feel. I want to prevent that from ever happening again. And no, I'm, I'm not sleeping so well these days, but again, I just really want to do the best I can and support the people of Michigan and keep them healthy. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. So, Zeke, in our conversation with Dr. Khaldun, she mentioned that the number of COVID-19 cases in Michigan has plateaued, and that is obviously really good news. And the other good news is, because of that, they haven't had to make the kinds of tough rationing decisions that you and I have been worried about, like access to ventilators and, and so forth in the ICU. But what I come away from our talk with her still wondering about is that we know that there are health problems that are very closely tied to race. We know that those health problems are really structurally induced. They're the result of generations of inequities in American society. So if we ration without taking those inequities into account, aren't we just passing down those injustices that have accrued over generations? What do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with it ethically? What do we do with it clinically? Yeah, I think you're pointing to a very important problem, which is that these structural inequities lead to actual physiological inequities, higher stress levels and therefore maybe higher stress hormones, worse laboratory values. And those things might actually have an impact on the clinical decisions that doctors make. Nonetheless, I think I'm reluctant to, in the midst of a pandemic, use the rationing of life-saving treatment to restore or make amends for many generations of historical inequities. We do have to address those inequities. I just don't think it's by putting a thumb on the scale of which patient gets a ventilator is the right way to solve the historical inequities that, frankly, affect the whole community and you would be solving it for a few individual patients. That just doesn't seem to be solving the problem in any deep way. You know, when we were talking with Dr. Khaldun, our focus was on what can be done through public policy and health policy to try to address some of these inequities. But policy has been failing the people of Detroit for such a long time. And when policy fails, the solutions to immediate problems often have to come from local community leaders. There are people in Detroit who've been working hard for years to make their city safer and make it more livable. We spoke to two of them about how they're dealing with this pandemic on the ground. 
My name is Malik Yakini. I'm a Detroiter, a lifelong Detroiter, and I'm executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. The Detroit Black Community Food Security Network operates a seven-acre organic farm, the largest in Detroit. They also run a youth program, and they're building a cooperatively owned grocery store. We're very concerned about the extractive economy that exists in African-American communities, and in Detroit in particular, which in many ways is the blackest city in America with a population that's about 80% African-American. There are no African-American-owned grocery stores. And so what we find is that the money that Detroiters spend on food is uh, extracted from our communities instead of circulated within our communities to create jobs and community empowerment. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect has to do with access to healthy food. The health disparities in Detroit can be linked, at least in part, to a lack of access to fresh, high-quality, nutritious foods. And so we're also concerned about helping to supply that and helping to mobilize Detroiters to produce as much of that food as we possibly can ourselves. My name is D'Amico Ashan Williams. Uh, I am the chief director of Hydrate Detroit. We're a local 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides emergency water, consultation and advocacy, along with restoration of water services to Detroit residents that have had their water shut off. After the city of Detroit went bankrupt in 2013, they tried to alleviate the city's debt by cracking down on overdue water bills. As a result, the water department turned off the tap for tens of thousands of homes, affecting more than 100,000 people. That's what spurred D'Amico Williams to action. Water shutoffs are very dangerous. No one should have their water shut off in the first place. I don't care if they couldn't pay. Water shutoffs should not ever be a business, nor water should ever be a commodity as water is a human right. It's sad that it had to take a pandemic for leaders to understand how these crises could have been avoided. Having your water shut off is always dangerous, but especially right now. When you're being told to wash your hands, but your water has been shut off, uh, it makes it really hard for that directive to be followed. So the governor of Michigan issued an executive order requiring all water service to be reconnected for the duration of the coronavirus crisis. But D'Amico says the governor didn't go far enough. Many households are still struggling to pay off their debt to the water department. And there wasn't no plan for that. It was just turn the water on, we'll deal with everything later. But when the pandemic is over, we don't know if that come May 1st, June, or whenever. But when this pandemic is over, there's going to be a lot of people that are not going to be able to pay their water bill. They're not going to be able to have income. They're not going to be able to have a job. They're not going to have any resources. These stimulus checks are only going to last a short time. He's been advocating to erase Detroiter's water debt, or at least reduce the debt to a reasonable amount. But the government, <laughs> the city and state, they say, oh, we can't let people evade their water bills. We can't let people uh, not pay and go. No, that's not. You're going to do something to help them in this time. And I hate that we have to be the ones to force them. But power concedes nothing without a demand. In the meantime, Hydrate Detroit is doing what they can to make sure that people have the water they need now. We can't wait for the government you know, to move. We have to move ourselves. So if that means making good call on social media for water, for donations, to help people get connected that were unable to qualify for the Water Restart Program. We've done our job. 
but for how long is all of this is going to take? I don't know. Where we are right now in this coronavirus is that people are dying. We don't know how many people have died that didn't have water, people that were on the brink of financial devastation, people that have been foreclosed on, and then also add stress, PTSD. You don't know what the hell you're going to do, how you're going to make it through the next morning, and when is it going to stop? I have a very close friend uh, who was a martial artist and a community activist, very physically strong person. In fact, I think a lot of us probably looked at him as invincible. And uh, about 10 days ago or so, after struggling with uh, COVID-19, he finally uh, succumbed to it. I've lost a dear friend who was our uh, state representative, uh, William Isaac Robinson. We miss him so dearly because he was fighting for the people and he just got elected last cycle. One of the uh, co-founders of the farm that we operate, D-Town Farm, in fact, our former assistant manager, passed as a result of COVID just a few days ago. And then um, I've also lost two family members and another activist friend of mine. One of my dear friends lost his mom. There have been other community leaders in Detroit who have passed relatively uh, young folks in their 30s. The police chief in Detroit has tested positive for coronavirus. The city council president tested positive for coronavirus. And so this thing is just really impacting all Detroiters. There's nobody who is escaping this. And it's just, you know, can't even pay tribute or memorial to the uh, victim because it's they, they don't want people in the funeral home. You know what I'm saying? We still have to practice social distancing. That is very infuriating. That will drive people to depression, drive them to drink in the bottle because you, you can't mourn your loved one. Detroit is a very resilient city and we've had a history of various types of crises and we always find a way to come together and address those crises that we're faced with. And this is no exception. So we're seeing all kinds of things happening in Detroit. For example, there's been people who are making prepared meals and taking them to senior citizens and taking them to first responders. There have been places such as the Oakland Avenue Farm, which normally is not an emergency food distribution center, but has kind of shifted and pivoted to become that for the neighborhood in which they exist. And so they're distributing not only emergency food, to people, but also distributing things like uh, Lysol and wipes and gloves and the things that people need to maintain the proper hygienic conditions in a situation like this. You have the kind of mutual aid of just individuals taking food to their neighbors, uh, dropping things on people's porches. I had a person yesterday concerned about me as a 64-year-old black man in one of the epicenters of this pandemic uh, who brought some some herbs and uh for upper respiratory problems and uh, dropped them in a, in a sealed container on my porch and let me know, you know, that they were there. So we're seeing a lot of this, folks looking out for each other in the face of this terrible pandemic. This is both a terrible crisis and also a tremendous opportunity. One of the things I've seen in the last month is that I've been contacted by more people wanting to start gardens than I have been in the last five years. Seeing on news reports, grocery store shelves empty, or seeing more recently reports of hundreds of cars lining up at food banks has shocked many people into reality 
and into rethinking how we uh, obtain our food. And so there's a window of opportunity that I don't think has existed at any time in the recent past. We can't go back. We can't go back to what it was before. It was not normal. It was not normal for people to get their water shut off, their houses were closed, to be in uh, schools that are subpar. We have to move forward. We have to love on each other. We have to do for our community. You know, that's where I'm at right now. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. So Malika Keeney says, this is both a terrible crisis and also a tremendous opportunity. What do you think of that? Well, I, I do think that crises often provide opportunities. We know, for example, from the New Deal, it provided an opportunity to finally establish unemployment insurance, Social Security, uh, recognize unions. We know that World War II provided an opportunity to educate a lot of Americans who otherwise would never have gotten that opportunity. Uh, I do think he's right that COVID-19 is such a social upheaval. It's going to be such an economic upheaval. It is going to present tremendous opportunities. But whether we can take advantage of them to really shore up our system to make sure people who have been at the bottom end socioeconomically, bottom end because of discrimination, will really get the kind of protections they need, whether it's through unemployment insurance, through better food, through better health care. I think that actually, ironically, a lot is going to depend upon the election. And do we elect people who are going to take this problem of these inequities that we've seen in our system and put in the kind of institutional changes we need to remedy them? It's going to require political change, but I don't think that's inconceivable assuming we can have fair and free elections this November. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content. Executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, that's me, and Zeke Emanuel. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. Special thanks to Mark Winston Griffith. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at MakeTheCallPod. Thanks for listening and stay safe.
this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.